We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast was produced, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. There's a moment right before violence happens, when things are said that maybe shouldn't have been. Sometimes you turn back, let it go, move on. But sometimes things just get worse. She's an only 15-year-old. Anna was 15, actually, 40, Anna. Probably 11. And she's a 15-year-old. Picking on an 11-year-old girl. Swearing too, it's not right, that's bad. Here's another one, I think. I think that's probably serious. This is Chelsea. She lives in Tennant Creek. She's showing me some videos that have been uploaded onto YouTube. These videos are of fights between pairs of people on dusty streets in outback Australian towns. Sometimes 30, 50 people are standing by the road watching. While there is definitely violence here, it's not the kind of gang violence or riots that you might typically find by searching for fights on YouTube. This video shows kids reenacting fights in their bedroom. It leads to fighting and yeah, some, some, just some words. Just somebody said something about somebody else and then it just carries on and on. As soon as they bump into each other up the street, Oh, you said this about me on Facebook. You said that about my cousin on Facebook. And then it, 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 just, it just... Sometimes it doesn't stop. It just carries on for months and months. And just those people or more just, people get yeah, involved? Yeah, and, 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 oh, and, the and the more it carries on, the more people get involved in it. There's not a clear right and wrong here. Fights in public have always happened in Aboriginal society as a way of resolving disputes. But these fights are different. Because they are being uploaded to YouTube or Facebook, some people are saying that conflict doesn't get resolved like it used to. Things have changed from the days when you do the angry dance and you'd have that rule-governed violence. Um, You know, there are blurred lines now between legitimate and illegitimate power. There's continuity and discontinuity you know, existing side by side so that, you know, sometimes good things come out badly and sometimes bad things come out well and it's all kind of a chaotic mix together. That's Tyson Yunkaporter. I'm from uh, Western Cape York, um, Uplitch clan, uh, Yunkaporter family, Um, uh, Wicknut and Wickmunkan people. I'm currently a senior lecturer in medicine health science at Monash University. And I'm Ellie Rennie, Principal Research Fellow with RMIT's Digital Ethnography Research Centre. This is Disconnect, a podcast about the use of mobile phone technology and social media in remote Australian communities. 
In this podcast, we'll talk not just about the fight videos you're hearing here, but about broader questions surrounding culture and technology. But first, a bit of background. Tyson and I have been researching the use of mobile devices in remote communities, along with our colleague, Indigo Holcomb-James. When we started, some communities had concerns that mobile phones and the internet were causing problems. One community we visited had even rejected the offer of a mobile tower many years prior. But there are good things that come with internet access too. This is me in Tennant Creek, talking with a group of young people about their experience with mobile phones. So what's good about it? Let's talk about what's good about it. But for Facebook, like family members, like they have us, like they never seen family from the stolen generation, so they probably type in and Google it, and that's how they get to know each other. I, I, I like about Facebooks to um, text my friends in Adelaide, because I was doing boarding school down there before. What about here, and I, if you wanna, if you wanna go and party with your friends, how you, what how you? So it's seen as a real positive, even to the extent that people are like, you know, you're not a real blackfellow if you're not on Facebook. Blackfellows are on Facebook. If you're not on Facebook, you're not a proper blackfellow. Being on Facebook makes it a lot easier for people to be able to find you as well because that identity stays the same mm-hmm. and that location on the internet is easy to discover. Traditionally, uh, our cultures, uh, there's a kind of dense sociality uh, to them. And um, this is not something that's necessarily negatively affected by the technology. It's actually seen in most quarters, it's seen as something that enables uh, dense sociality, especially over distance. There's a lot of social fragmentation that happens in our communities and there's a lot of transience, of course, um, but people are able to maintain um, dense social groups and communities that would have been impeded by distance before. A mobile phone in remote Australia can be a lifeline. It helps you organise a lift to town, it connects you to government services and enables you to pay your bills. It allows people to share their opinions and represent themselves outside of the dominant paradigm. It connects you to family near and far, but it can also cause social disconnection. What does personal device mean if you're from a culture um, where a thing called demand sharing is in place, you know, where the way your whole society is set up and the way your local economy is set up is by, you know, sharing with each other on demand? How does that privacy work? How does the, how does the whole idea of a personal device, how does that work within a communal um, living framework? To be a person who steps outside of the sharing economy um, and who doesn't meet their obligations of sharing is to be cursed, you know. That's just the law. This is where the lines become blurred between, you know, legitimate and illegitimate. You know, so while, yes, there is this demand-sharing economy that's enshrined in in traditional law, uh, at the same time, if you... If you're doing that inappropriately or too much, then it becomes humbug. Humbugging means begging relatives to give you things. It's a negative word, but it stems from a value of helping each other. 
That's what Tyson means when he says demand sharing economy. You know, so um, a lot of humbug or, you know, inappropriate demand for sharing. You know, there's the old story of hiding your cigarettes under your hat so that when someone asks you for a cigarette, you say, no, I don't have a cigarette. Yeah, some people were kind of uh, making a connection between phone credit and cigarettes. It's like... um, so phone credit is, is the new cigarettes. And we heard stories, um, particularly of women having a second phone. That like they a would, decoy phone. And, yeah, and they yeah. keep it in their bra or hidden somewhere. And they'll choose a phone where it's not a smartphone so the screen doesn't light up mm. so that if someone's trying to find a phone in the dark, it won't light up. Mm. And that there was a real safety reason for that. Yeah, people have um, different adaptation kind of responses. You know, I I have trouble keeping track of phone numbers in my extended family because for a lot of people that their device will change every couple of months. But then I've got one sister who has had the same device and the same number for 10 years. I call her and it's like a constant, you know, and she's really strong traditionally and in culture, like really, really adheres to everything, but nobody messes with her phone. Leslie Akers is Program Officer with Indigenous Services in Public Libraries and Engagement with the State Library of Queensland. Her role is to support Indigenous knowledge centres throughout Queensland in three remote communities, uh, Sherberg, Wurrabinda and Palm Island. And I work with a team um, who are based in Cairns. We look after 24 Indigenous knowledge centres. Yeah, I've noticed particularly that there is always a a change in phone numbers in communities, whether it be through a loss of device or a damaged device or they've given their device to another family member and then purchased uh, another device with a new SIM. Why do you think that happens in remote communities? I think mainly it's the fact that the device is... And technology is so disposable these days. Phones don't last in our communities. Um, the the high usage of them um, from whether or not they get given to other family members or they get damaged or lost, I think that is the, one of the main reasons behind the high volume of, um, of phone numbers in our community. But it's not just about the hardware itself. There was a story in some of the interviews that you did, I wasn't there for this, uh, where a man was talking to you about how his daughter had been using his phone. Do you want to tell that story? I think it might have been his niece. But anyway, yeah, somebody that he, so he had that particular kinship pair with and he's quite responsible for any uh, partner that she might have for marriage or or, you know, as a de facto, would put them in an in-law kind of group. And there's different kinds of avoidance relationships. There are quite strong rules in place and limitations in place about what kind of communications you can have with in-law groups and what you call them or what kind of things you can say. So, yeah, so what are the repercussions if you have that poison relationship with in-laws and then, you know, your child is using your phone to call their boyfriend and then their boyfriend's calling on your phone and you're picking up that phone and you're seeing that name in there. 
particularly if you're a really strong man culturally who's trying to uphold these things and seeing all these encroachments coming in left, right and centre and who might be struggling a little bit economically and who is experiencing difficulties with the phone and other things being stolen or uh, taken and is getting frustrated about these things, might have had some brushes with the law from expressing that frustration in pretty inappropriate ways, you might be right on the edge and ready to snap. And then you get that wrong way call from, you know, someone who you're supposed to be in an avoidance relationship with and they're being cheeky to you where they need to be avoiding you and showing respect. You might just lose it and smash your phone or smash them. Devices are only part of the issue. When you have social obligations of the kind Tyson is talking about, then things like passcodes on phones or blocking people on social media don't work. For instance, some people said they don't use passcodes on their phones. That's because others kept trying to guess their passcode and the phone would end up locked. So even though social media suits the networked nature of Aboriginal society, the design of the technology is making life difficult. These problems get worse when people, often kids, set out to cause trouble. Well, there was there was a, an instance. Um, it was such a, a horrific sort of breaking of protocol. It was like a breaking of two protocols, and it was enabled by the social media. This isn't a story that took place in Tennant Creek, and we can't say where it occurred. Swearing people is a really specific thing. It's quite an offence. It's an attack. And then the other protocol was, you know, mentioning the name of of someone who's recently passed away which is culturally an absolute no-no in this community. So what you had was someone combining those two offences and swearing dead people. And it was so shocking and so horrific that, um, you know, the backlash from it was, was massive. There were very big fights, very, very upset people who were seeking justice and um, people who'd avoided accountability through anonymity through the social media. They'd even been able to hack other people's accounts and do it through other people's accounts. So there were some people who were being unjustly punished for committing this crime, but but hadn't actually done it. And there's a fair bit of that that's going on. If you're a powerless person in a powerless community and suddenly you've got your finger on the button, how are you not going to press it? You can oppress it. In remote communities like Tennant Creek, footy day is the biggest day of the week. Families come into town from all over. Some have existing hostilities. Something is said, someone reacts. It doesn't take long for tensions to erupt. Well, on Facebook, is the one thing about jealousy is about football. That's it. So if, if this football team play against this one and the team wins, they got read it on Facebook. Oh, this team wins. It happened around here, with Tenning Creek, all over around those community, outback community. But were you saying that the fight itself was not always about football? It could be about something else. Yeah, it could be probably about a man rubbing another married man for his wife. It could be over that jealousy, or it could be over. A man texting a man's 
partner on Facebook or AG. AG is a mobile chat service. Every Friday night, everybody's ending up going drinking in the pub and ending up walking out with each other's another ex-partner and boyfriends. So the next day, they'll say, oh, I've seen you walking with my partner. And someone told me they'll probably say like that. So that's how it starts over there, at the football over. And then more people get involved. Yeah, more, more men's, more women's, and yeah, all that. They all get involved, and that's how it goes. More bigger, it never stops. Things escalate very quickly. This was something we talked about uh, early on in the study. We were talking about um, teasing. Traditionally, teasing was done in a very specific format. There was a specific kind of dance and a song that went with it. So these were kind of rule-governed things, but they were designed to sort of escalate feelings um, to a point for a very, like an angry dance and a kind of an angry ritual and then uh, a ritualized sort of combat coming out of that that was designed to end grievances and to work work out different tensions and problems. When the schools, when schools came into the community, you know, through the missions, teasing evolved into something different and it became something that children had quite a bit of power through this teasing because children were able to um, do teasing more um, covertly in a classroom in a way that wouldn't be immediately attributed to them and cause a big fight and completely disrupt that class and then actually send the school into a riot and then have that riot spill out into the community. But with the social media, there's the potential for no accountability. There's the potential to be able to shift accountability onto somebody completely innocent that you hate. So it's kind of like this evolution in the culture that's actually that's come through different, um, different mediums that are really they are culture changing. Some people, they're not, even on, they're not even have a phone to get on Facebook, but they hear and they see from other family members. So they're looking out for each other? Yes, Is that what family. they think they're doing? Yeah, yeah. 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 But why does it start on social media? Like, what, what's... Why is, like, why is it starting I, there rather than... Because it's open. Everyone, as soon as you write something on Facebook, it's not only for you and that person you're talking to to see. Facebook is a worldwide site. It's a worldwide thing. Yeah. Sometimes the whole world sees what you write on Facebook. It's not only what family, what, you know. It's the whole world, they can see what you write. People's honour is at stake, but it's not clear-cut. The fight videos, they are really quite highly structured and really quite organised and rule-governed bouts that are actually a bit more along the lines of traditional kind of idea of what became known in Aboriginal English as fair fight. Okay, so a fair fight, so you'd have the traditional fighting grounds that were used for dispute resolutions and there's rules, you know. Nobody gets hit when they're on the ground. There is no kicking, like no kicking. And quite controlled, you know, so we have, you know, there's, you know, a, a woman can be fighting another woman um, uh, with the baby in the pram like a couple of metres away with 
absolutely no concern from anybody for that baby's safety because that fight's not going to spill out into rolling around and hair pulling and crashing into the pram. Those women's feet are planted right there. Everybody comes out to see the fights. Everybody gets excited. So you can have like two, three hundred people all on the street, all watching. And um, pairs fighting. When you've got video of two or three hundred people excited on the street with some handheld, shaky, there's some punches, there's coconut trees, <laughs> there's dust, there's skinny dogs, oh, there's a strange language, all these black people, and there's a foreign language and it sounds angry and, yeah, and kind of looks like a riot, I guess, but it's not. And you can actually see when people begin to transgress the rules in, in those fights, the crowd will call it out. And uh, there's something about it being uh, visible, you know, on YouTube that actually makes those people accountable for, um, for following the rules too. In fact, you don't see riots. I mean, there are riots from time to time, but you don't see those on YouTube. People aren't filming those. You tend to see the smaller fights that are really rule-governed and organised. You see them sometimes referred to as riots when they're quite clearly not. I suppose for me, they do sit uncomfortably a bit that when you normalise through YouTube and when these fights are being um, continuously recycled through the um, the nature of the platform and the more views it gets, the more it'll show up in recommended videos and all of that, that it's it's creating its own culture. Well, here's where I guess this theme keeps coming up of, of these binaries that just don't work. And when you look at the, uh, the non-Indigenous fight videos, there are a lot of features in that genre that are quite different from the Indigenous ones. For a start, there's often collateral damage. In Indigenous fight videos, there's never collateral damage. There's a lot of things that don't fit, and there's a, yeah, they are, they are really problematic. It's a whole genre that's emerging, and it's hard to tell if it's improving things because it's making them visible, or if it's actually encouraging violence, or if it's making the violence rule-governed and actually resulting in less harm happening. When community people, Aboriginal people, had these devices and uh, started to kind of reclaim that that space in some way. Um, so suddenly it wasn't about these terrifying, savage images of the other. It was something that we were doing for ourselves. We were representing ourselves. But then I guess also re- reclaiming control of the violence itself and imposing those rule-governed um, checks and balances that come with having something being publicly visible. But then at the same time, it is creating a culture of violence and glorifying violence and normalising violence, which is making people unsafe. They've got families living at the town camps down here. Okay. Yeah. So when they have problems down there, they come back into Tennant Creek and find each other here and then fight here. Okay. Instead of they get each other and go back to the place where they start problems. Yeah. They come back here into other people's country and start problems down here and that's not right. They come for the football. Since footy started sort of being sort of fighting and all that, 
because they've been fighting in their community, but the ones that they fight within the community, they've moved to another community. So they come back to Tenant Creek to take their players to play football, and they all meet up there. So when it's 40 over, they meet at the front here and start the fight. And then that's when it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. Other family members coming from other communities. They need an elder to stand up and speak to them. So it just doesn't have to go all over on Facebook, AD and all that. You know? So you got probably an elder for that community and an elder for another community and an elder from here to speak with the other two, like the other two blocks that been fighting. See, the other elder speak to the other elder, and the other elder speak to the other, and the, the other two elder, they get together and they speak to the other elder from here to sort it all out. So when it's all done, everybody goes out to community and it's all clear. We're not here to be fighting each other. We're here to respect one another and to respect our elder. That's what we're here for. Because once our elder are born, we won't be having them. We'll be just ourselves walking around. Once our elder, we lose them, we won't have any more. So our next elder will be a, probably a next generation, you know? That's what it's about. I'm Nicholas Suzo, Associate Professor at Queensland University of Technology School of Law. When the traditional systems of governance are threatened, are social media platforms to blame? There's no such thing as an ungoverned space. There are always people who make decisions about the kinds of content that are allowed. Most of the major uh, social media platforms that we use today come out of the United States and they're governed particularly by the law in the United States that gives them a lot of flexibility, a lot of latitude. Importantly, you have in the United States, there was the Communications Decency Act in the late 90s, which um, originally tried to set up a set of standards that would um, restrict the availability of adult content online. The Supreme Court ended up striking that down. But what's left of the Communications Decency Act is this big, strong protection for platforms that they're almost never liable for what users say, but also that they have almost complete control over how they choose to create and enforce their rules. It's the individual versus the group. Where does accountability sit? Well, there's an immediacy to that in terms of accountability. There's no hiding from that. Like, yes, there'll be fights then, but everybody will know it was you. There's an anonymity that comes with the idea of individual privacy online. There's an anonymity that actually removes accountability. It actually, you know, takes you out of the lines of traditional authority. I think there's a man who's probably 45-year-old. He's got a profile on YouTube. And he's got all the little kids, like probably say from eight or nine year old to 13 year olds fighting each other, but just fun fights. Yeah. Is he like a man that lives here? Yeah. And he's got them doing fun fights? Yeah. I don't know why. Just girls. Just girls? Yeah. And the, the young girls on the app there, that's them there fighting on that video clip on that man's profile really? on YouTube. Yeah. yeah. Why do they say yes, though? I don't know. That's wrong. They should, he should get mother's permission and, like, parents' permission before putting those videos. 
Yeah. On YouTube. That's not right. Because they're only underage. And are many people watching his videos? Yeah. Yeah. What do the little kids think? Well, they reckon it's just fun. When I was little, I think it was fun too before. Nicholas Souza thinks social media platforms inherently alter the conversation. When we regulate speech through law, we have democratic processes that make sure that the laws we create uh, represent, theoretically at least, the will of the people. We also have a whole range of other institutions, like courts, that will ensure that the rules that the legislature creates don't contravene individual rights. Platforms don't have any of that infrastructure, so they're essentially just making the rules up as they go along. We have a legal and political system that understands concepts of freedom of speech when they apply to the state, to public entities. What we don't have is a language that applies for what exactly we would expect from platforms. We need to have that bigger discussion. Do these spaces enforce their rules in a way that allows people to participate fairly? That's a a discussion that we are only just starting to have. Returning to the Indigenous Knowledge Centres and Leslie Akers. Facebook is the most popular social media platform in our remote communities. With the negative behaviour or antisocial behaviour that it actually can attract, a lot of our Indigenous Knowledge Centres have actually banned the use of Facebook. It depends on each community actually turns people against each other and then from there it creates and can manifest into a bigger confrontation if the issue hasn't been resolved and sometimes um, people will also continue with that grudge until they feel like they've actually resolved it themselves. So that antisocial behaviour is not condoned by the council who are very quite adamant in banning the use of um, these social media sites if it's not going to be used in a positive way. However, banning Facebook in one centre doesn't make the broader issue go away. If you're protected and safe from the rough and tumble and, and from the harm, then your participation is limited. Therefore, you're not safe because you've been marginalised. What we need to see, I think, is more sustained engagement with those cultural sensitivities and the international complexities. Nicholas Souza. The only way to fix this is for platforms to more openly talk about their rules with all of the different stakeholders that are involved and to do the hard work to come to some sort of consensus about what content is acceptable and what content is not and then to work to ensure that those standards are fairly and consistently enforced. Unfortunately, that's a lot of work and it's a lot of Um, new work for platforms that have historically not wanted to play that role of moderation. There's no way these days that platforms can avoid doing that moderation. So it's time for them to find new ways of doing it legitimately. And that's the big concern and the big set of work that needs to be done in the future. 
But it's the best thing to do is an elder go and speak to another elder and an elder go and speak to the father's parents. And then they all get together with the two fathers and the fathers and parents, with the three elders. That's the only way to make it stop. Because if they don't have an elder to speak up and to sort them out, it's just going to go spread out everywhere. It's just going to go on and on and on to another year, to another month, to another year, to another. When you do post something and you think it's deleted from your screen doesn't mean that it's been deleted from the internet. And that's what we talk about, your digital footprint. So in our communities, when we talk about our footprints of elders and our ancestors, we realise that's a permanent fixture. So when we use it in the context of digital footprint, that seems to resonate with our communities. The fight videos highlight the contradictions between technological platforms and Indigenous social structures. While on the one hand the fight videos are violent displays, they also contain echoes of traditional culture. Social media platforms increase the prevalence of cross-familial tension and they allow for group communication and self-expression. This duality needs to be recognised. We'd like to thank the elders of the regions we travelled to in the creation of this podcast and during the research that underpins it. Telstra funded the project as an action within the Connection and Capability Priority Focus Area of their Reconciliation Action Plan 2015 to 2018. We'd like to thank the Youth Forum participants and Papalu Apakari for inviting us along. Thanks also to Leslie Akers and the State Library of Queensland, which is working with Telstra to improve digital literacy and cyber safety in that region. And to Associate Professor Nicholas Souza from QUT. This podcast was produced by RMIT University, led by myself, Ellie Rennie, Indigo Holcomb-James and Tyson Yunker-Porter, with audio crafts Camilla Hannon and James Milson.